Let's all turn in our Bibles. We're going to be in the uh, Gospel of Matthew this morning in chapter 24, and we're going to cover verses 1 to 8. I titled this morning's message, The Signs of the End of the Age. And I believe that it's, uh, periodically I do that. Uh, throughout the year, I'll, I'll, the Lord will put on my heart, and I've and I been feeling this for a while, that I think we need to do a, a message in regards to end times. And so we're going to have that actually today and over the next couple of weeks. We're going to go through uh, Matthew chapter 24. And so let's uh, open in prayer. Father, I thank you uh, for the time that we had here yesterday, uh, the time of outreach, uh, the many people, Lord, that we had opportunity, Lord, to speak to, to minister to. And we just pray, Lord, that you would continue to pour out your Holy Spirit upon this community. Lord, that you would meet the needs, uh, Lord, of, of those people in this community that have great needs. Lord, that you would draw them by your Holy Spirit to yourself that you would continue to give us open doors, uh, Lord, to share our faith and, uh, and to invite them to come in and to hear the Word of God. And Lord, I pray that you'd pour out your Spirit upon your people here this morning, that you would stir our hearts with a fresh excitement, Lord, of just the thought of your return. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many of you are ready for Christ to return? I mean, I think most of us, if not all of us, raised our hand or at least should have. But I, but I would say this, that it would probably be an eye-opener to you if you were to look and to see how many, we'll say, evangelical Christians are actually waiting with anticipation for Christ's return. As a matter of fact, it is, uh, we might say, a dwindling topic in many churches. And how could that be? I mean, we, we talk about Christ's first coming, but what about His return? And why do we believe that? If I just simply asked you, why do you believe that Jesus Christ is going to return? I hope your answer would be because he said so. He said he's coming back. And, 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 and I believe what he says. And I believe the Word of God, what it says. And it tells me that Jesus Christ is going to return. And whether or not you feel ready this morning to stand face to face with the Lord, that's not going to change the timing of our Lord's return. He's going to come back in the time that He knows, that prescribed time, and then we're all going to stand before the Lord. But our heart should be waiting in anticipation for Christ's return. It's, it's our hope as believers. Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25 are referred to as the Olivet Discourse. We might say that this is one of probably three other teachings that Jesus gave to His disciples that we might call major teachings. And this was an important one. It's an important one for us today. Both of these chapters, 24 and 25, actually going back to chapter 22, both of these chapters are happening in the last week before Jesus went to the cross. And you can find this teaching, this same teaching, in Mark's Gospel in chapter 13. You can see it in Luke 21. And we can get a few more details as we go through Matthew chapter 24 from those other Gospels. We'll actually eventually get there as we're, I'm teaching Mark's Gospel. But in chapter 22 of Matthew, we read that the Pharisees were plotting how they were going to trap Jesus. They were looking for a way that they might destroy Him. 
And it was really a time of question and answers that Jesus had with these religious Pharisees there on that temple mount on that Tuesday, that week before He would go to the cross. The chapter ends in verse 46 with, and no one was able to answer Jesus a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare to question Him anymore. You see, when Jesus put a question to rest, He did it in a way that they couldn't respond. That's how the Lord was able to deal with these questions. In chapter 23, Jesus would give His final words to the multitudes. He would give this scathing denunciation of their hypocrisy. These religious leaders that were there. And in chapter 23, Jesus that day would leave that Temple Mount area for the last time before He would go to the cross. We're told that Jesus on that day as He was there with His disciples after all of this dialogue that went with these religious leaders throughout the day, that they left that Temple Mount. They would, Remember, they were, uh, they were staying off-site. They would travel up the Mount of Olives and go to the place where they were staying. This happened each night as Jesus was preparing to go to the cross. His disciples would leave with Him that day and they would go out of that Temple Mount and they probably exited out the East Gate. And if you've ever seen the pictures there of the Temple Mount, you'll see the East Gate on the east side. You'll see the East Gate and you'll see that there's uh, like a pathway that comes down the side of the, the mount there that goes into the Kidron Valley. And when you get to the bottom of it, you'll come up the other side. And when you stand on the Temple Mount, looking eastward out, you see the Mount of Olives that are, is out in the distance. Just right there. It's where the Garden of Gethsemane was. It's the place that Jesus often went up and down. The Mount of Olives. It was the place that Jesus would ascend from. Jesus and His disciples, they leave that day. And they, they make their way up once again, for the last time for, the, for Jesus anyway, up to the Mount of Olives. But before He left that Temple Mount, in chapter 23, verse 37, we read this. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, and stones those who were sent to her. He's speaking about His own people. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But then we see some of maybe the saddest words if you're looking at your Bibles and all of the Bible. But you were not willing. But you were not willing. You see... Your house is left to you desolate, Jesus says. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That wasn't going to happen and has yet to happen until the second coming of Jesus Christ. He's speaking to His own people Israel. Jerusalem, Jerusalem. These two statements that Jesus would make in these, in these words on that day, they were alarming to His disciples. It was, it was causing questions in their mind. The words that Jesus was going to speak. He, he says, see, your house is left to you desolate. Israel, God's chosen people, the Temple Mount, the temple that stood there. The one that the place in which God dwelt for the nation of Israel. He says, your house will be left to you desolate. That word desolate means deserted. He was speaking of a time where this temple would be deserted. This whole temple mount, it would be uninhabited. It would become barren. 
It was a warning that went out to them. And then the second statement that he made in verse 39, he says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In this judgment, Jesus does imply hope until he comes again. That's the hope. But he says, You'll see me no more. He was going to be going to the cross. And there's coming a day, and it's still yet future, where God is going to intervene once again into the affairs of, the, of His own people, the nation of Israel. There's going to be a period of time that is going to come upon this earth where God is going to get the attention of His people. It won't be until the end of the tribulation period that they once again will see Him they'll recognize the one whom they have pierced. They'll look upon the one whom they have pierced. And there'll be that day when they will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It doesn't tell us in the text here that the disciples had really an understanding or a complete understanding of what Jesus was saying here. I think that for a moment they were just pondering what He had just said, and and in a sense, the warning that He had given to them. And I believe in their hearts they were probably alarmed by what He had said. It appears at this point that the disciples, they kept their questions for a later time. And so, as they were leaving this temple mount, as they left this area, they were walking down the hill and, and, I, and I believe there, there came this point where they just had to ask Jesus some questions. And I believe that Jesus probably, as He made His way, He turned them around to look back at that Temple Mount. A beautiful picture. It was the pride of Israel in front of them. And we pick it up in, in Matthew 24, verse 1. It says, then Jesus went out and He departed from the temple. And the disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. I mean, this was a, a, a gorgeous view. Buildings that were magnificent in their architecture. Made, you know, just this, as I said, the pride of Israel was before them. And like the disciples, and like every Jew, they were awestricken. Just by the temple, just by the city itself, they were awestruck with what God had given to them. But here's Jesus telling them that it's going to become desolate. It's going to become deserted. Uninhabited. And it's the next statement that would have alarmed them too, Jesus says to them in verse 2, do you not see all these things? He's speaking of the temple. He's speaking of the large wall that surrounded the temple mount. Do you not see all of these things? The temple, the magnificent buildings. that He says, assuredly, Or I tell you a truth. He's saying this to His disciples. I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not one stone. This magnificent temple mount. The temple itself to be torn down. Stone by stone. Can you imagine how alarming that would have been? And how they would not even have been able to wrap their head around how that could come to pass. How that could be. Mark's Gospel gives us a few more details in chapter 13, verse 1. Teacher, they said, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here? And Jesus answered and said to them, 
Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. In Luke's Gospel in chapter 21, then some, as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and, and, and donations. And they said, these things which you see, the days will come, which is speaking of something yet future, in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. I've been to Israel. I've stood in the, uh, near the uh, wailing wall there, and to the side of that wailing wall, there was a, a period at which archaeologists unearthed an area where they found these large stones that had been pushed by the Romans off the Temple Mount to the side. big pile of these large, massive stones. They literally tore that down stone by stone. The evidence is there even to this day. I want to give you a sense of what these words of Jesus would have meant to his disciples or to any Jew of that day. The temple itself, the work that went into that building of this, what is referred to as the second temple. There was Solomon's temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then we have Herod's temple that was to be destroyed by the Romans and taken down. This second temple that was Herod's temple in the day of Christ, it began in 20 B.C., 20 years before Christ came. The construction of this temple was one of King Herod, Herod the Great, one of his greatest works, one of his greatest ambitious projects that he had in his lifetime. He was an architect of the day. He was the one that built Masada, if you've ever heard of that or seen pictures of Masada. Caesarea Maritima. He built all of that. And it just I've been there. Just, and just the remains themselves were magnificent to see. He was this man that took pride in building these incredible things. He actually expanded the whole Temple Mount. He took the whole Temple Mount because he wanted it to be larger. And he put, and he put these beams out across the top and backfilled it and increased the whole size of the Temple Mount. That was a feat in itself. It was this building that was perfectly tooled and fitted with white marble stone. This is what the, the pride of Israel was. Some of these stones were tons in weight. I've seen some of those stones hewed out from the quarries. They've actually found those quarries. They've found where these stones were cut from. Herod took this whole temple mound and expanded it, built all of these buildings around it. And that's what Jesus was telling His disciples that it was going to be torn down stone by stone. It took 10,000 laborers to do the work. There were 80 years involved in the building of it. It was a, a, a massive project. And Jesus is saying it's going to be torn down stone by stone. History confirms that what Jesus told His disciples on that day, history confirms that that came to pass. It would be a little less than 40 years later that the Romans under Titus would come into that area and would not only seek to kill every Jew that was in the city, but would also take and tear down that temple and the wall and everything about it and all those buildings and tear it down stone by stone. They didn't want there to be any remnant of God left on that temple mount. That happened in 70 A.D. You can go to secular history and see that that literally happened in history under the, the Roman army and under Titus that came into that city. 
1.1 million Jews were killed by that army as they came in. The remaining Jews that were there, they fled to that area called Masada. I've been there on Masada. And those Romans took five years to try and wipe out the last thousand people as they were up on the top of Masada in this fortress. And after five years of, uh, of all of trying to attempt to get in, and they finally did, the thousand Jews that were up on the top of Masada committed suicide. Five years wasted. They, were gonna, they, they spent that long just trying to wipe out every single Jew that they could kill. And then they just committed suicide instead of being taken into the hands of the Romans. Impre incredible. This was to come to, come to pass. Your city, this temple is going to become desolate. It's going to be torn down stone by stone. And it came to pass, just as Jesus said it would. Jesus and His disciples, as they left that east gate and made their way up to the Mount of Olives, they came to that time where the Jews still had more questions, excuse me, the disciples still had more questions that were rattling around in their head. They had questions for Jesus. These questions that they asked concerned the signs and the times of Jesus' return. I'm a, what you might call a literalist when it comes to my reading of the Bible. A literalist is that I don't spiritualize the things that don't need to be spiritualized. If there's not something there to tell me that it's a symbol or something, then I take it literally. That's a literalist interpretation. Historical, literal interpretation of Scripture, which I believe is the proper way to look at your Bible. I don't try to spiritualize all the things that we see in Scripture. I believe that there is coming a time that literally is going to be a seven-year tribulation period that is going to come upon this earth. I believe that it's going to be followed or end with the second coming of Jesus Christ at the end of that tribulation period. I believe that there's going to be a 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ here on earth where Jesus Christ is going to sit on the throne of David just as He said that He would. And He's going to rule, and you and I that know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're going to rule with Him for a thousand years in that millennial kingdom. A restored kingdom here on earth. And I take that and I read that in a literal way. That thousand year millennial reign is going to be followed by a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to take and recreate a new heaven and a new earth. And we're going to be with the Lord for eternity. Are you excited? Amen. In Revelation 3.10, Jesus speaking to the church at Philadelphia said these words, because you have kept My command to persevere. I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The church at Philadelphia being kept from that hour. We're not appointed to wrath. I hope you know that. And I believe that that seven-year tribulation period is going to be a time of wrath that this world has never seen before. We're not appointed to wrath according to what God says in His Word. I like that. Jesus went on to answer these questions. And look at verse 3 in Matthew. Now as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, and that was again, like I've explained before, a teaching position. He goes up and He sits. And His disciples come around Him. And the disciples came to Jesus privately, we're told, saying, and here's the question, one of them, tell us, 
When will these things be? And then the second question, and what will be the sign of your coming? And then a third question, and of the end of the age. They're, they're concerned that Jesus had given this warning to them. When are these things going to come to pass? When are you going to return? When will you, when will you return? And when will the end of the age come? You, you have to always keep in mind that the disciples and the Jews of that day, they were thinking, even at this point, that Jesus was on the verge of setting up His kingdom here on earth. All the way to the cross. When He rode into that Temple Mount on Palm Sunday, they thought, this is it. He's going to establish His kingdom now. It's what the prophets foretold would come. And that day has come. And when they saw their Messiah hanging on a cross, just a week later, just hanging there dead. All of their hopes were dashed. This is it. That's how their mind thought. When you read Matthew chapter 24 and 25, I believe that we could read these chapters in chronological order. I believe that there's a chronological order to the events leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. In response to their questions, Jesus gives them, in these words, just a general revelation of what things will be like after His departure from this earth. He's given them just generals. General understanding of what things would be like. The church age was about to begin. Remember, the church age started on the day of Pentecost after Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And, the, and they were told to go wait in Jerusalem. And they waited there until the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them. Fifty days later, as they were there in Jerusalem at the Feast of Pentecost, the church age at that point began. And now from verses 4-8, to eight, And that's our text this morning. Jesus is going to give His disciples these general characteristics of the church age. These are the things that will lead up to, we could say, to the tribulation period, that seven-year period of time. We're still in that church age. 2,000 years later, we're still living in the church age. We're still living, we might say, in the time of the Gentiles. You see, Israel, for the most part, rejected Jesus Christ as their Messiah. There were some Jews that believed, but many rejected. And there came this period of time not only called the church age, but also the time of the Gentiles and where God was now going to manifest Himself and reveal Himself and show even the Gentile nations that God has a plan of redemption for them also. We're living in that time now. In a sense, Israel today has spiritual blinders on. And God is working through the Gentile nations today. He's working in the Jew also. But for the most part, it's the time of the Gentiles. It's the church age that we're living in now. Looking ahead, and we won't get there today, but I want to read this. Look at verse 29 to 31. It's going to end this section, that this chronological order of Jesus now coming back at the second coming. It says um, uh, in verse 29, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, and I believe we're talking here about this seven-year tribulation period, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in earth and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. 
and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And He will send His angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And they will gather together His elect. And the elect there, I believe, is speaking of the Jews from the four winds from the one end of heaven to the other. That's what Jesus will finish speaking to these questions about when is Jesus Christ going to return? When is He coming back? And he answers that question in this text. The first question they ask Jesus is, tell us, when will these things be? When are these things going to be? And Matthew's Gospel doesn't even directly answer the question to that first question. It, It doesn't even give us really a direct answer to that. But... I believe that it relates to the destruction. What he's speaking of here is the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But it also responds to the next two questions, but he gives a warning. He gives a warning in his response to his disciples of what they should be looking for, what we should be looking for, of the signs that will lead up to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Look what he says in verse 4. Jesus answered and said to them, to his disciples, take heed. Now this words take heed is a command actually here. Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. That's how Jesus answers that question. When will these things be? Jesus, in a sense, he's warning them. He's warning us today that his departure from this earth was drawing near. That during this time, this church age, this time that we're in now, that many, and he doesn't say just a few, but he says, but many false Christs will claim to be Messiah. And they're going to deceive many. Now, do you, even in our lifetime, I want you to think about the number of false Christs that you've heard of. The false witnesses that are out there concerning Christ in our lifetime. Let alone 2,000 years of church history. False messiahs. As a matter of fact, I went on to Wikipedia and just looked at a list of, under the title, false messiahs. And you know what they give for a list? Wikipedia lists 69 false messiahs in their list. Fifteen of them are Jewish messiah claimants. Thirty-five of them are Christian messiah claimants. It gives their name, it gives their year, it gives their details. Ten of those are Muslim Messiah claimants. And nine others that are combination people and groups that claim to be and to have the Messiah. Jesus says, and probably the primary sign to be looking for, is that before His second coming, there are going to be many that are going to come and deceive. There are going to be many that are going to be calling themselves the coming Messiah. And there's going to be many that are saying, I am the Christ. We're seeing that in our day. The Apostle John, who wrote the book of Revelation, he wrote that in 95, approximately 95 A.D. He wrote this in uh, actually in his other letter of 1 John chapter 2. He says in verse 22, Who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ, he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. He also wrote in 2 John verse 7, he says, For many deceivers have gone out into the world 
who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Those that are against Christ. Those that would put themselves or pose themselves as a Messiah. Many. Jesus says in verse 5, for many will come in my name. Why, why would they come in his name? Why do all the cults today use Jesus' name? They don't, they don't leave Jesus out of their, their doctrine and what they teach and what they go out with. Why do they still use? Because it's the power that's in that name. It's the power that's in the name of Jesus Christ. And even the cults, they still use it. One of the things that whenever I share with a cult, one of the things that really kind of gets them a little stirred up is that as I'm sharing with them and talking with them, I always refer to the, the Jesus that they're speaking to me about. I refer to them as the Mormon Jesus. I refer to them, uh, to their Jesus as the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. And after you've said that about, you know, five or ten times in your conversation, they don't like it. What do you mean, the Jehovah's Witness Jesus? What do you mean, the, the Mormon? Well, the, the Jesus that I see in the Bible is not the Jesus that you're bringing to me. He's not the Mormon Jesus. He's not the Jehovah's Witness Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible is different than what you're bringing to me. Many will come in my name. Many will proclaim to have the real Jesus. It's interesting that when you read the book of Revelation in chapter 6, you see the, and many of you have probably read it or heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. It's, it's going to be this unfolding that is going to happen during the tribulation uh, period, uh, this unfolding of events that's going to take place. Where the, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it starts out with the white horse, doesn't it? And the white horse is the false Messiah that's going to come on the scene at the beginning of the tribulation period. The next horse in that line is the red horse, the horse of war. And then the third horse is the black horse, that, which speaks of famine upon this earth. And the fourth horse is, is the pale horse, or death. And so we can see the parallel, even as we're looking at what we're reading here this morning, about the signs of Christ's return. Keep in mind that everything that we're seeing in our world right now, transpiring, this is like a prelude to what's going to be happening during the seven-year tribulation period. The second question that the disciples asked Jesus was, what will be the sign of your coming? What should we be looking for? Look what he says in verse 6 in your Bible. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all of these things must come to pass but then he says these important words. But the end is not yet. All of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. I found a list. There's a lot of lists. And you could probably find various lists with various numbers. But I found a list of the current wars in the world today. And that list consisted of 67 countries that are involved in war currently. 719 guerrilla and terrorist groups are involved. Currently, there's eight countries in the world that have nuclear weapons. The British uh, paper called The Independent wrote an article that there are only 11 countries in the world that are actually free from conflict. And Jesus says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, which speaks, I believe, of the rise in the conflicts that we are seeing in the world today even. Jesus says, 
This is not the sign of my return, but will be the conditions that are leading up to my return. When you see these things, then know that you're drawing near. Know that those times are, are drawing near. The Global Peace Index, as it's called, it ranks global peace in 172 independent states and territories, and this is just of a million people or more, it rates the, the level of peace in each country. 172 of them. You know what the most peaceful place is on earth? And it is not even without conflict. The most peaceful place is Iceland. If you want to have a little more peace, move to Iceland. The United States is kind of way up there in the conflict. The, the less peace. The place on earth that this global peace index gives the most unrest, no peace, is Somalia. And everything in between all that, you know, from uh, all the way up to 172 of them, this, this is a world that has no rest, no peace. It's what Jesus is talking and saying to His disciples, and it's words that speak to us today, that you will hear of wars and you will hear rumors of wars. Jesus then says in verse 6, See that you are not troubled, he says to them, for all of these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. False Christs and deception. Wars and rumors of wars. Do you think we're seeing that in our world today? It's there. Jesus has given us things to look for that we should be watching. He's not giving us really anything real specific. He's given us general understandings of what to look for. How many ladies here have given birth to a child? Raise your hand. Okay, you ladies, you will understand what I'm going to share next better than anyone. Because what Jesus is talking about here and how He describes these events leading up to His second coming has to do with childbirth. Has to do with uh, what goes on, I should say, in childbirth. I think you ladies understand that when you start out your pregnancy, it's all good. Usually, after you get over the morning sickness, and then you move into that stage where you start having a little bit of birth pains as the day gets closer. And the closer it gets to that day of giving birth, it intensifies a little. That's what I understand anyway. It intensifies a little to that point where you give birth and it is, now it's time. That's the picture that Jesus is giving here to His disciples, like a woman in labor, and as those birth pains are increasing and intensifying as it gets closer to that day of arrival, that's what it will be like. This will be what the signs are leading up to this second coming. Now what's interesting is, if all of these things are in relationship to the second coming of Jesus Christ, then where does that put us as, as Christians now that believe in a rapture, that believe that we're going to be taken off of this earth before that seven-year tribulation period, where does that put us as we're seeing the signs in front of us? Well, there's actually really no real signs for the rapture. We're called to be ready. We're called to be with anticipation, waiting for our Lord's return, that He could come back at any moment. I believe the early church lived in that way, that Christ could take us away and take us to be with Him at any moment. It's called the imminent return of Jesus Christ. And I believe that that's what the Bible teaches. I don't believe that we can say, well, I, you know, I could tell you for sure that Jesus Christ couldn't come back today. Well, you know, there's still people in the world that haven't heard the gospel. I could tell you for sure he wouldn't, you know, 
It wouldn't happen today. No, that, that's not what we see in Scripture. We're called to watch and be ready. For in the hour and the day that you think not the Son of Man comes, I believe we're going to meet the Lord in the air. And I believe it's called the rapture of the church. Keep in mind also that when you study Bible prophecy, and this is what gets confusing to people. Some of you have maybe been confused on this point. When you study prophecy, you need to make a distinction between the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when you're reading your Bibles, you need to make that distinction. You have to know in context where you're at and what you're reading. Are we talking about the rapture of the church here, or are we talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ? That's real important. Both of them are different events. And both of them have different characteristics to them. The rapture of the church, we're going to be caught away. We're going to be taken up to meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming of Jesus Christ, like I already read you at the, in Matthew here, it's going to be a different type of intervention of Jesus Christ coming to this earth and intervening at that last uh, part of the tribulation period. But Jesus went on this third question in verse 7, what will the sign of the end of the age be? And Jesus says in verse 7, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places. Now, Jesus already said in verse 6, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And, and those, that wording there and how it's being put is really talking more of localized wars, smaller wars, smaller skirmishes, more uprisings within. Like, like that list that I, that I shared of how many nations have skirmishes and wars and conflicts going on within them. That we see all over our world today. But nation will rise against nation. That's something different. That's an intensified version of just wars and rumors of wars. But nations against nations, now we're talking about world wars. Now we're talking about something far more intense than just wars and rumors of wars. But nation against nation. And, and we've already seen that, haven't we? We, you know, it, we are very familiar with World War I and World War II, aren't we? And many other world wars that have gone on in history up to that time. But what we're talking about, and even as we look at our world today, and how nations are lining up against nations. Are you sensing that as you're watching your news? Are you watching China? Are you watching Russia? Are you watch, watching you know, North Korea? Are you watching these nations, how they are really aligning themselves and even against the nation of Israel? Those are the things that we should be looking for. What's going on in our world right now when we're talking about nation against nation and all the talk of a, of a, of a, a third world war? And the, and the nations coming against, and the nuclear pro proliferation that's happening once again in a, in a great way amongst these nations. I believe that our world is preparing for that day. And what we need to be as Christians is we need to be aware. We need to be watching and aware and seeing the signs and looking for those Things and if, and if these are the signs leading up to the second coming of Jesus Christ, and that these things are going to really intensify during the tribulation period, how far off are we from the rapture? Where are we at in line with that? There's also going to be famines, Jesus says. Nation against nation, world wars, and there will be famines in the land. Now, there's always been hungry people, hasn't there? 
and going back to the birth pains and the intensifying of these things, that's the key to understanding what's being said here. He said, well, we've always had famines. How do you distinguish anything then? Well, what we have to do is we have to look at where are we at today in our world in relationship to famines. And what is it going to be like during the tribulation period in regards to famines? Where will it intensify during that time before the second coming of Jesus Christ? In other words, we're in the prelude time. We're seeing the signs around us. We're seeing these things beginning to heat up, intensify. The United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimates that about 820 million people of the 7.6 billion people in the world are suffering from chronic undernourishment in 2019. That's twice the population of the United States. The people are suffering. You can read statistics all day long when it comes to famine. You want to go on here? You want to go on and look at the hardship that's going on in our world in the way of famine? Just go on. Are we intensifying in that way? We are. This world is intensifying in that shortage of food for people. What will it be like during the tribulation period? It will not be better. It will be worse. There will also be pestilence, Jesus says. And this pestilence, we're getting a taste of it right now, aren't we? Because the word pestilent means, really by definition, infectious diseases. It's infectious diseases without cure. It's, it's those diseases that spread out of control in our world. You know, like influenza. You know, get you, got your flu shot? You know, you, you, you all geared up for this year? Influenza and all the different strains of that. AIDS. And though they've come up with some things to halt the process of it, it's still uncurable. Tuberculosis, cholera, MRSA, called the superbug, Ebola, you know, and, and the list goes on and on. And these are things that we're just recently seeing ourselves as you turn on the news and watch what's going on. And here we are in the midst of this coronavirus. Something that's, you know, we don't know where it's going to lead, where it's going, but it's going. And, and how is it that Jesus here is able to give these kinds of things to look for? Wars and rumors of wars and nation against nation and famine and pestilence. These are the things that He told His disciples, this is what you should be looking for. The signs leading up to My second coming. According to the World Health Organization, chronic disease prevalence is expected to rise by 57% by the year 2020. The Boston-based catastrophe risk model firm called AIR, A-I-R, announced it has expanded its global pandemic model to include outbreaks of six additional diseases. They're gearing up. If you just watch what's going on, they're gearing up. Our president right now is getting pressed on this issue. We need to dump more money into the fund to prepare for what's coming. Antibiotics that are not even able to stamp out some of the things that are going on right now because they're becoming resistant to it. I mean, Jesus said this 2,000 years ago, and here we are looking at these things in front. How close is Jesus Christ to returning? That's what should grip us. That's why we shouldn't be caught unaware as believers. I mean, when I went to Nigeria and Shane went there, Kyle went there, uh, with a number of other people. I mean, I don't remember how many Shane had or Kyle, but I know I had eight shots 
I had to go get eight shots just to go to Nigeria because of the diseases and the various things that are there. We're living in a world that is really, it's, it's, it's out of control. And if we really spent time thinking on it, there's a lot of people get freaked out over it. They are already, aren't they? Coronavirus, man, wow. I mean, we're, you know, look what it did to stock, look what it does to the economy, everything. Yeah, just give us one pandemic and you know, the whole bottom's dropping out of everything. Where's that going to go when we get into the tribulation period? Where's this world going to be? They went on to say this World Health Organization, the model now explicitly accounts for nine pathogens, including bacterial and viral diseases, in addition to previously modeled influenza, coronaviruses such as those responsible for SARS and MERS, including Ebola and Marburg. These are all active diseases, pestilence that are in our world now. He went on to also say to them about earthquakes in various places. And earthquakes have always been around, haven't they? They were back in the Lord's day. There are earthquakes today. You can go on and you can spend a lot of time looking at, you know, just key in, have earthquakes increased? You can go in and you look and you can find all kinds of data. And in all the research I've looked at, and all I've looked, earthquakes are increasing. You'll always have those people, no, they haven't been. They just, we just have seismology now that can, you know, monitor it and we, they can, they're just finding more. So it seems like, no, there's actually more because what we look at is the uh, intensity of earthquakes that are over a certain point, like six pointers and above. Those are the ones that are increasing. It's interesting that when you read the book of Revelation, you see about four different major earthquakes that are spoken of in the book of Revelation catastrophic earthquakes that the Bible describes that this world has never seen before. What's a 10-pointer look like? What's a 10-point? I don't know. If it, it, I guess it doesn't go above that, but God says it can go above that. Earthquakes in various places. I read even in one article about all the earthquakes that were happening in Oklahoma that they didn't even see for years and years. Oklahoma? Oklahoma? Earthquakes? I mean, just for another interesting fact, there's currently right now uh, 36 active volcanoes popping off in the world right now. All related to earthquakes, volcanic, you know, ring of fire, all the, that's going on right now. It's all part of our world. You got all the, the, the people saying, well, yeah, we're destroying our earth. Yeah, the place come apart. We've got all more storms and all this stuff going on in our world. It's because we're destroying it. We need to, you know, you got all these politicians saying we only got 10 years. Might have less than that. The Lord comes back. But all of these things, without Jesus giving any real specific details of them, he gives us these things that we practically, we could sit here today and go, you know what? I see that. And then Jesus finishes with these words. Verse 8. All these things, or all these, excuse me, are the beginning of sorrows. That word sorrows is what I was relating to the women that have given birth. This is the beginning of sorrows. False Christ, wars, famine, pestilence, and earthquakes. These are the conditions, we could put it that way, that Jesus says are going to be seen before His second coming, before He comes back. We need to be watching, church. We need to be aware. We need to be watching, alert, aware of our surroundings. And you know what it'll do for us as, a, as Christians? If you're aware of these things, it should stir up your heart. It should stir us up inside. It should make us want to tell people that we love. 
They need to get right. They need, they need to get their hearts right before the Lord. That's, to me, a healthy part of a Christian walk. Anticipating Christ's return. Uh, those Christians that want to just say, you know, hey, I don't concern myself with that. You know, when Jesus comes back, and come back. I can tell you right now that if I had a, was sitting in a large room of a lot of Christians and, and had people honestly raise their hand of how many really would like the Lord to come back today, I'm going to tell you that there would be a lot of them that would not raise their hand if they were being honest. They're not ready for it, nor do they really want it to happen right now. And you know what? We should be as Christians be saying, Lord, Maranatha, Lord, come back quickly. Lord, I'm ready for Your return. Your perfect timing will be perfect for me. And that's how we should be as Christians. And we should be stirred up with hope. John wrote in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, speaking to Christians, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, speaking about future, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has this hope in Himself purifies Himself just as He is pure. The one that has the hope, the confident expectation of Christ's return reigning in their heart, do you know what it should do? It should bring about a purification in our walk. It should give us a, a desire to live holy for the Lord. Because just the thought of me standing face to face with the Lord, how many of us would like to be caught unaware? How many of us would like to be in a position, you know, if I, if I told you there's no way, biblically speaking, that Christ could come back today, what does that do for you? If I told you he couldn't come back for the next 10 years, what would you do? You know, I mean, I, I, you know your flesh like I know my flesh. You get, you're not coming back for 10 years. All right, we've got some time. We can do some things. You know, we can, we can, we can enjoy life a little bit. We've got 10 years. I'll get things really right in that last year. He that has this hope purifies himself just as he is pure. And then in, we'll close with this in Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And then it says this, looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That should be our mindset. That's how we should be living. Next week, and if you have had questions on this topic of the rapture, if you've had question marks of, of understanding this whole teaching of the rapture of the church. We're going to continue Matthew chapter 24 next Sunday. And we're going, to, we're going to see the first half in this chapter 24. The first half of the tribulation period. And then we're going to see also following that, the second half of the tribulation period. Why do I call it the first and second half? Because there's specific markers that, are, that, are, that we can find in Scripture that tell us how long will the tribulation be and what will be the marker in the middle of the tribulation period be and what's the difference between the first half of the tribulation and the second half of the tribulation and where it is all going to end up. What is that all going to look like? And where will we be during that time? See, those are all, I think they're important questions. I mean, I believe in a rapture. I believe that the church will not go through the Great Tribulation. And if you have questions on that, that's okay. You know, we all have the questions at some point, but I believe the Bible is very clear and to the point on, uh, on this topic. And I think it's an important one. So you can read ahead 
you know, verse starting verse 9 and, and read on through this chapter and you'll see chronologically, even though the chapter is primarily dealing with the second coming of Jesus Christ, I believe that the rapture of the church is spoken of also in this chapter. Because why? You've got to go through the seven-year tribulation period before you can get to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so let's pray. Father, I thank you uh, for your word that is uh, very clear and, and, and very uh, informed. It, it, it tells us everything that we need to understand about your, your coming for your church, about your second coming, about your plan for Israel, about your plan for the Gentile nations. It's very clear. And Lord, we can only just, we can only thank you uh, for just this incredible plan of redemption. And that's really what it's all about. It's all about the redemption of mankind. You're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's your heart. Your desire is that your children, your church, would live in such a way that we would glorify you in these last days. And Lord, we thank you for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We can all stand.